If you listen to Israel National Radio, chances are you believe the land of Israel is special, and the people living there need to know that they have your support. Now you can show that support and have the time of your life doing it. The annual Bet El Gala Dinner is the place to rub shoulders with the movers and shakers of Israel amongst lavish cocktails, fresh sushi, and an open bar, followed by an elegant dinner with entertainment. Israel's Deputy Foreign Minister, Danny Ayalon, will be speaking to you about the importance of Israel and other Israeli-related subjects. Just go to BetElDinner.org and sign up for having the time of your life. But hurry to reserve your ticket. Spaces are limited. You'll be glad you did and have lots to talk about for a long time afterwards. That's BetElDinner.org. Go there now. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. You're back once again on the Noahide Nation show here on Tuesday, and I've got my new but old co-host, Mr. Adam Penrod, with us. Adam, you over there? You alive and well? I am alive. At least that's what the latest medical reports tell me. So you don't know if you're well? Who knows? (laughs) He's alive, but not well. (laughs) Well, folks, we're glad that you could uh, jump in with us here on the Noahide Nation show. Uh, We are going to kind of wrap up our discussion uh, last week, which was on just what the heck is a Noahide. And we got pretty far along in the idea of a gear to solve and uh, uh, specifically spoke about a gear to solve and what needed to be happening when that status was going to be implemented. Uh, We talked about what it meant to a Gentile in Israel, what it meant to a Gentile outside of Israel. And we're going to kind of start at the end of that and kind of finish up on that, but also provide a very, very important point that's brought to us uh, by the Rambam. So, Adam, I'm going to let you share that with the folks. Well, as we're concluding a Gertoshav status for B'nai Noach, we're moving into another area, which is your everyday observant Noahide, someone who's observant in the seven Noahide laws. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the, the difference between a person who observes the Noahide laws and a person who's a Gertoshav? If, as we said, and the Rambam says, that you can have Ger Toshav status in Israel or anywhere, any place in the world. So is there a difference between a Ger Toshav and a regular Noahide? Well, the Rambam says there is in uh, his laws of kings, in the laws of kings, in, in their wars, uh, Hilkot Malachim in uh, chapter um, 8, chapter Halakha eight, 10. Halakha 10, right. Chapter 8, Halakha 10. And there he tells us, to have a Ger status, you have to formally accept upon yourself the, the observance of the seven Noahide laws before three scholars, and that's called a Beit Den. Ray, you're pretty familiar with this because uh, you have this uh, going on at your conferences. You've had the, right. both your conferences. Right, in 08 and then again here uh, in the last one in uh, July 
we have and will always have an opportunity for those Gentiles who are attending to take the pledge if they haven't already. And that is always before three Torah scholars. And last two outings, it's been with three rabbis. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you get much more scholarly than that. Right. And they and the thing is, is that uh, I know there's a concern about from some people now, the, the pledge is, uh, of course, a person who takes on the pledge, they don't have a full Gertoshav status because, as we said last week, you have to have the Israel observing the Jubilee, and that's not you're not able to observe that until you have a fully recognized Sanhedrin who is identifying the Jubilee. But what you have is you have a Gertoshav-type status that would be useful in, uh, you know, if, if the state of Israel were looking for a legitimate reason to have Gentiles living in the land of Israel, then this would certainly be a vehicle for that. Because what's going on is is that the person is saying, I am accepting these seven Noahide laws upon myself. They're, you know, of course, recognizing the oral tradition, which the, you know, the rabbis have had since Mount Sinai. And so they have uh, really connected themselves to the Jewish people. And this is essentially the difference between a person who doesn't take the pledge right now and a person who does take the pledge. A person who doesn't take the pledge but is observing the Noahide laws, of course, Hashem will give them full credit for observing the Noahide laws. Right. There's no status difference in the eyes of Hashem. The status difference really comes in being a Gentile desiring to live in the land, correct? To, to my understanding, uh, and, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm sure I'll be corrected. <laughs> but to my understanding, the, the, the difference is that uh, this is a status for somebody who it gives them, number one, the, the right to, if they so wanted to, live in the land of Israel. Um, it would be, it's the, the basic requirement. If you're a Gentile, the basic requirement for you to stay there is going to be you have to have had this oath. Now, if you have that status, the other positive, I would think, about taking this oath, even if you're not going to live in the land, is that you've declared publicly that you are keeping these seven Noahide laws, and you've make a, you've made a public declaration. And there's some power behind that. When a person makes such a declaration and says, I'm identifying with this belief system, and I'm, I'm obligating myself, it's more of a um, sense of public obligation. Everybody knows right. you're obligated. Okay, so let me see if I get this right. What, what you seem to be saying is that by taking the pledge, you know, making this declaration, whether it be uh, before Beit Din in Israel or outside of Israel, they are at, when it becomes into effect, uh, a gear to solve status. Now, what I'm curious about, and I'm sure you, you know, are familiar with this as well, there are many who have actually done conversions from non-Jew to Jew. And interestingly enough, a lot of these conversions, and I probably shouldn't say a lot, that may be embellishing it, but there are conversions that are not acceptable in Israel, where people have literally been told that your conversion is not good, you have to reconvert as it were Mm -hmm. so um, now if we switch that over to the noahide who has taken this pledge outside of israel which then seemingly gives us the opportunity to live in israel once that time comes would we then just be able to move in and show our certificate signed by a rabbi or the three rabbis of the Beit Din, or would we have to then take it again almost like you know a restatement of that previous statement well it, it kind of depends the issue with uh, conversions in part is a political issue 
Okay. Uh, it's you know, and so since we're talking about a status that is not according to the full halakhic way of recognizing a ger toshav, and we're dealing with a secular government, how that's recognized? If this status were recognized and, and, and given any sort of uh, validity by the the state of Israel, which is secular, mm-hmm. it would be it, it, they would probably probably be through some means of, of they would have their recognized scholars that they would want to be in charge of it in some way. So I can't really uh, answer that question as I don't know because you and I both know that this right. is actually something going on in Israel. Right. There, there's some. There, there are people who are actually looking into this or trying to bring something about. Or, or, or I say, I should say that uh, these, there are rumors at the very least. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's leave it there. <laughs> we'll leave it there. There are rumors that have reached our ears that that this is something that's going on. To to what extent, if they do do it, are the, the people who have taken the, the pledges so far are they going to be recognized by this government? Well, I would certainly hope so. It would make sense to that, but uh, then again, we're dealing with a bureaucratic body, right. which may have its other and probably to just justify their existence. They're going to make us would make us do it again. Possibly. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if we're talking about politics, that's that's what's going to happen. Quite frankly, I don't think it would happen with a secular government anyway. It's going to have to be a Torah government, Torah based completely. It uh, will have to see at least the beginnings of the temple being built. The Jubilee year is going to have to be reinstated. So there's a lot of things that have to happen before we really have to start concerning ourselves with that. But boy, what a day it'll be when we get to ask that question. Absolutely. But this is the this is the difference between the, the two types of Noahide. A person who goes around and goes, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to observe these Noahide laws. And, and the other thing is uh, the Rambam ties into the... Uh, into all of this, the idea of a person who accepts and observes the Noahide laws because they were given at Mount Sinai, he may, you know, has, is assured to have a place in the world to come. Right. So in one sense, this public declaration also sort of serves to make a public declaration that you recognize that the Noahide laws were given, although they were given previously to Noah, they were also given at Mount Sinai to the Jewish people to safeguard, which they've done. And that's why we can even talk about B'nai Noach today. And we Which, owe them a great deal for doing so. It has not gone without pain. We owe them like we, we could never pay it back. We, we and the thing is, is that the, the nice thing about this Noahide movement is that because you have so many really solid rabbis who we can point to and who we know they are, who they are, it's much less likely that we're going to run into the problems which other Noahide movements in the past have run into. There's an argument that both Christianity and, and Islam, to some degree, began as Noahide movements. But the problem is, is that uh, you know because these movements sort of broke with the rabbis, broke with the rabbinic tradition, broke with the tradition from Mount Sinai, that they eventually went off and created their own religion. So right. that, that that's why I think this is another reason why it's very important for people to 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 proclaim. You know, not only do I observe these seven Noahide laws, but I recognize that these are coming from, this is part of the rabbinic tradition. Right. And the Rambam tells us that, too, is that the only way that you can be recognized as pious among the nation's righteous is not just keeping the laws, but knowing that those we're doing that because Hashem told us to. Hashem right. commanded us to. Right. Not because in our minds, rationally thinking that, hmm, if I murder somebody, that takes their life away, so therefore I won't murder somebody. Mm-hmm. So rational thought cannot be an aspect of it, though 
if you did keep the seven laws and it was based on rational thought, you would still be considered a wise person among the nations. However, you just would not be a, a pious, uh, rec- recognized for your piety in, in the eyes of uh, Israel and in particular so in the eyes of Hashem. Absolutely. I mean, we're doing it because he said to do it. Right. And who knows better than he. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so so this moves. So I think we've sort of, in a way, explained the Gertoshav and also explain your regular average everyday Noahide who has not taken the pledge, and that is that their status at this time is that, well, they observe the seven Noahide laws, so they're an observant Noahide. But uh, then we have our third area, which I would call a person who is obligated to keep the Torah but doesn't keep the Torah. Right. I mean, all of mankind is required by Hashem to keep the seven Noahide laws. That was the purpose of saving mankind in the first place, uh, or I should say the reason that Noah was selected, because he was a righteous man. He he was righteous in the eyes of Hashem. He walked with Hashem. So that was the reason that he and his family were preserved, and the preservation was for the purpose of mankind basically starting over again and keeping the seven Noahide laws. Now, the the, uh, the seventh law was actually given to Noah, and that was to not eat the limb of a living animal. That there were there were six prior to that, and that was the seventh one. But you know, pretty much say that the Adamic law with the six, mm-hmm. and then now it's the Noahide laws because they're the seven. And also, there's you know debate on uh, the previous ten generations because of how bad it was. I mean, and, and, I mean to actually consider that they that Hashem chose to destroy mankind. That's how bad it was, and so it was almost like put it out of sight, out of mind. Let's remove it, and and go with Noah, Noah Hyde. That's why we refer to it as the Noah Hyde laws rather than the Adamic laws, right? So anyway, sure. that was probably a, a long-winded uh, <laughs> discussion on something that we need to move on from. We need to get to the other status. Which is those who are non-observant. That means non-observant of the Noahide laws means that in, that in one of the categories or one of the seven areas they've chosen not to observe the laws. And so, of course, the Noahide laws are uh, the first one is idolatry, blasphemy, theft, murder, illicit sexual relations, eating the limb of a living animal, and then, of course, a positive commandment. It's really a positive-negative commandment simultaneously to establish courts of justice and not to pervert justice. Right. And in some way, you know, you had said earlier that a person who observes the Noahide laws because they make sense is called wise. And that's true. They're a wise person. But there are individuals and belief systems that uh, you couldn't in some, even call wise to some degree. You couldn't, uh, who have chosen to violate one of the Noahide laws. So some of them it's a matter of culture. Some of them it's a matter of religion. So cultural unobservance would be, for example, the types of food that you eat. How is that food prepared? Right. There are there are places in the world where where they have uh, traditionally taking an animal and, and, and hacked off a limb and let the animal live. You see this with third world countries where we don't have refrigeration. You know, from a rational standpoint, it makes more sense to hack off a limb and leave the animal alive so that you can, you know, preserve the food right. longer than it does to kill the whole thing and, and potentially risk it going to waste. 
But, you know, Hashem doesn't tell us to be rational. He tells us to be dutiful and observe these commandments. Now, obviously, in a situation where it's a life and death situation, just like Israel, Noah had to have the ability to temporarily not observe something. But it's it's temporary and it's got to be a life and death situation, not a, not as part of your culture. And there are some cultures who have made certain activities. Okay, you know, I used to be a big movie buff. I used to watch just about every kind of movie you can imagine. One of my favorites was The Score. Right. Robert, right. Robert De Niro right. and uh, Edward Norton. <laughs> and I loved it because, you know, you love the – I always enjoyed the, the idea of the, the human mind being able to overcome a difficult situation. And uh, But then finally I, I started thinking about this movie. And I realized, what is this movie really telling us? It's teaching us it's okay to steal as long as you're basically a decent person. Like if you're a, a decent person who you steal, but you're stealing from the rich, it's okay. You know, just, just don't be mean to people. You know, if you're, as long as you can do that, as long as you can steal and be a nice guy, just like the, what is it, the Italian job? With, right. You know, right. the Italian job, uh, another similar theme that... In America, we've gotten this idea that it's okay to steal as long as you're a nice person. Now, the fact yeah. of the matter is is that ultimately, if you're stealing, you're not a nice person. No, and that's amazing because uh, what was the reason uh, for the destruction of man? Right. It was theft. Theft. So here we have uh, an entity, Hollywood, glorifying the very thing that mankind was destroyed for. Absolutely. And it's like, ah, good old Hollywood, you know? Right. So we're, so this is an example of, in America, I feel like in, in regard to observing the Noahide laws, this is a cultural threat to the Noahide laws and that our culture is beginning to see to believe that you know stealing really isn't that bad as long as you're a decent person in other regards. Well, let's take, for example, idolatry. Idolatry is definitely a religious, but it can also be uh, sometimes even a, a cultural type of idolatry. Absolutely. Religious idolatry being that you see uh, something, a being or whatever is being God. And that's whether you do it consciously or unconsciously. Right. There's uh, sin that you commit willfully and sin you commit that's you know not willful. You you're kind of lack the Un- understanding. Unintentionally. So yeah. unintentionally. In fact, a lot of this unintentional if we were to use an example uh, and it's only because i've been there is 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 christianity many many argue that we agree on more than we disagree on in terms of noahides and christians however the thing that we disagree on is probably the biggest thing that there is and that's this whole idea of just who is god god cannot be a man Mm-hmm. Okay, so we we have the issue of of idolatry, which if we look at the Christians' idea, they believe in the Ten Commandments, and that's not why. But the first one is what, in essence, not to commit idolatry. Mm-hmm. I am your God, uh, so it's not to commit idolatry, and yet that's the very thing for most Christians. It's an unintentional sin. They're just it is. not well, aware. And the thing is, is if you ask a Christian, are you a polytheist? And they'll say, no, I'm a monotheist. And they believe that 100%. I'm a monotheist. Right. And, you know, in that kind of situation, the Rambam tells us that such a person will not be held accountable for a sin of ignorance by court, for example. By court, you can't be. Right. And even to a certain extent, I think Hashem would cut you some slack in that regard as well. But the, the thing is, is not it's not a question of reward and punishment. You know, we don't serve Hashem because we want to get something or we want to avoid getting something. We serve Hashem out of love of Hashem. And that's why we ought to be serving Hashem, reward or not. 
And so that means that if you're a Christian and you want to serve Hashem, don't rely, don't relax into your ignorance. Really try to understand God's nature and what God says about his nature and what God teaches you to, to do, how he wants you to approach him and how he wants you to relate to him. And God doesn't want people to relate to him as anything than other than what he is. He doesn't want he doesn't want you relating to him through a stone. Right? Our our our, our Hindu uh brothers and sisters, right? They're out there and they're and they're representing attributes of God through statues. Now some people actually worship these. Some understand that these statues are pointing to a higher essence, but they're worshiping in one sense also like Christians out of ignorance. But God wants you to know who he is. And he wants you to relate to him correctly. Right. And, and when you don't do that, this is how you, you, you violate this, this law against idolatry. And, you know, for me, and again, this is just an opinion as well, it comes in the, in the study. If you're just showing up once a week, sitting and listening to the guy at the podium for an hour, two maybe, that is not what you would call due diligence. Mm-hmm. That is not seeking Hashem. Seeking Hashem is now taking what you heard during that one or two hours, go home, open your book, and start studying. And in essence, see what God says. That means look at the the first five books, uh, what we call the Humash, the Torah. Uh, that's the instruction. It's uh, uh, the instruction manual on how to live life and have a relationship with Hashem and how to have a relationship with your fellow man. Now, if you cannot take what you heard from the fellow at the podium and relate it back to the Old Testament, as it were, those five books, then what you heard is not correct, and that's all there is to it. But if you don't do those types of things, there's no way you can come to know God. I mean, it's as simple as this. I mean, Adam, how do you, how do you become friends with somebody? You talk with them, you go out, you spend time with them, you share ideas, you share problems. I mean, that's how you get to know. You you study this other person. If, if Guys, just to let you know, if I were to, uh, if at any point in time when I got to know Ray, if I had started relating to Ray as if he were a woman, I don't think we would have lasted as friends for very long. <laughs> you know, relating to somebody is something that they're not. They don't appreciate that, and God doesn't appreciate that either. You've given away my secret. <laughs> <laughs> but but thanks for bringing that up, right, Adam. <laughs> right. But that's so true. I mean, the only way you can make friends with somebody is by learning about that somebody. But, and if you don't, I'll guarantee you're not going to be friends. You can't mm-hmm. call yourselves friends. It's the same with Hashem. How can you call him friend? How can you call him a God if you don't know anything about him? If you don't study him, if you don't uh, speak with others about him and, and learn, you can't. You can't get there. So that's why I say that even if you're sitting in a church and you're there for an hour and you're listening to the sermon, if you will, uh, you need to be able to take that sermon back and confirm that in the Old Testament, in the five books of Moses. Why? Because it tells us clearly that those five books were written by the hand of God. 
They're you know, his words. That's what God says. You know, I, I feel we, we got a little distracted in our discussion here because uh, we were supposed to be talking about what is a Noahide, and we got into a sermon. <laughs> right. And uh, now, sadly, we bumped up against we, the bottom of the We're out of time, hour. yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe we can dabble in this uh, a little bit more next week. And uh, we do have kind of a, an announcement that we're going to make next week about the direction of the show. Uh, until then, folks, we appreciate you sticking around with us for this half hour. Next segment, we've got uh, some friends of ours, uh, Mr. Joshua Plank. And his rabbi, Rabbi Reuven Mann, who are going to do a special teaching for us in the second half of the Noahide Nation show. So I know you're going to enjoy it. And in the meantime, uh, Adam and I will see you next week. So Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov, everyone. Hi, this is Lenny Solomon, and I know you enjoy my schlockrock music, and I always enjoy Walter's World, the weekly program on Israel National Radio, Arutz Sheva, that brings Israel to the world and the world to us in Israel. If you want to be informed about events in and affecting the Holy Land, do as I do. Tune in to Walter's World, only on Israel National Radio, archived and available on demand from our radio website. My name is Quentin Ireland. From Orlando, Florida, just coming to see God's land and God's people. I have seen a great many people with the courage. They're saying this is the land that God gave us and following his mandates. I'm Bart Nubur. I'm Dutch. I'm here the fifth time in Israel. I felt in Jerusalem that there was something that drew me there to the wall, especially. That's why I'm coming back. You're listening to Israel National Radio, spreading the light of Israel around the world. Welcome to this segment of the Noakide Nations radio show. This is your host, Joshua Plank. For those of you that don't know me, I've been in Noakide for several years, originally from Indiana and now living in Arizona. Got a really great show for you today. A very special guest is joining us. Uh, some of you may recognize. He's been teaching Noakides for many years. That's uh, Rabbi Reuven Mann. Uh, Rabbi Mann is the educational director of Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Far Rockaway, New York, founder of the Masoret Institute of Advanced Judaic Studies for Women in Inwood, New York, and also the rabbi of the Young Israel of Phoenix, Arizona. So there's a lot that Noachides can learn from the story of, of the Jews' exodus from Egypt. In fact, the Torah states that the events of the exodus and the ten plagues, they were for the benefit of non-Jews, so that uh, Egypt may know that I am Hashem. Right, so we're going to uh, examine a, a passage from the Torah and see what we can learn from it. In Exodus chapter 7, Hashem says to Moshe and Aaron that when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Provide a wonder for yourselves, then you'll say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron did so, just as Hashem had commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a snake. And so we'd expect at this point that Pharaoh would be pretty impressed. You know, Hashem told him that Pharaoh would ask for a sign, and this is, you know, this is the sign you're supposed to provide. You think that this is going to be an effective sign? But surprisingly, Pharaoh uh, also summons his wise men and sorcerers, and then the, his magicians do the same thing with their with their magic. So the question is, I mean, what, what kind of sign is this? It's you would expect that God would give an effective sign, 
uh, if the purpose is that, that Pharaoh would recognize God, why give a sign that he's kind of like, no big deal, I can do that too. So, Rabbi Man, uh, what's up with that? That's a, good, that's a very good question. Uh, it, sh- it should be noted that this is not considered one of the ten plagues. It would appear that um, it's different than a plague. Uh, the intention was purely a sign. Of course, it's an interesting question, what's the difference between this and the subsequent quote-unquote plagues? For example, the conversion of the waters into blood. Uh, that too is intended. It's a sign. Indeed, all of the plagues were signs. So it's interesting to, then if, if this is the case, why isn't this the first sign, and then there should be 11 plagues? Uh, we'll put that aside for the time being. But the questions that are being raised by Josh are very good questions. In that, it would seem that uh, what is the essence of a sign? What constitutes a sign? How is Moshe going to prove that God communicates with him? I think another question would be, how are we to understand that Pharaoh's sorcerers, necromancers, whatever you want to call them, magicians, how are we to understand the idea that they seemingly did the same thing? How could they possibly do a thing like this? How is it possible? Does it, is it possible? Does any human have the capability of taking a staff and converting it into a snake? That's the first thing we have to ask. Now, a simple reading of the uh, Torah over here might lead a person to such a conclusion. That, that would create all kinds of problems. Now, um, I want to set the, the groundwork, so to speak. The, if a person were to, to come to us um, claiming that uh, he was a prophet, that God had communicated with him. That's a, very, that's a very important topic in the Torah. The Torah has given us guidelines how to ascertain legitimate prophecy from false prophecy. False prophecy is considered to be a very serious sin because it uh, distorts the most fundamental idea of true religion. It's based upon prophecy. That is to say that uh, God communicates uh, to mankind. But we maintain that it can't just be anyone. It's got to be a prophet. And a prophet has to be in an extremely high level of perfection on all, all areas, intellectual, emotional, and in, in the most perfect state, in order to be capable of receiving the message from Hashem. And so Judaism is unique in that. But above and beyond, if the person were to have all of these qualities, still he would have to demonstrate now, we're talking over here about before the Torah was given. What constitutes a demonstration after the Torah is given? According to the Rambam, Maimonides, is that he is able to uh, predict future events that nobody could know, and they must come true in every exact detail. However, over here, this is before the Torah was given. And it would appear that he had to do, Hashem, that's one of the questions that Moshe asked at the burning bush, that they'll demand proof. Interesting, from this you see that the Jews are not a gullible people. Moshe said they'll demand proof. They won't believe me. They'll say that God didn't appear to you. So from that we can learn that you're supposed to challenge a prophet. Unfortunately, that's been the biggest problem throughout history of false prophets and just winning people over on the basis of uh, charisma, emotional charisma, without any objective proof whatsoever that God spoke to him. Here... Moshe was providing a proof, because that's what God said. Power will ask you for proof. And so power also wasn't stupid. 
course, he had emotional reasons to, to discredit Moshe. Now, the proof would have to be something which a human being is incapable of doing, obviously, because if a human being is capable of doing it, so then it's not proof, it's part of the natural order. Thus, and then, but your own common sense will tell you that. I don't think any sane person will make the claim that, and today with all the scientific progress, we could, with cell phones and worldwide communication, and the ability to um, to put a person to put a man on the moon, I don't think any scientific person would say that we have the capability of taking a staff and turning it into a snake. With not 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 only um, we don't have that ability miraculously, but even with all the technologies in the world, we're just not there yet. You know, they're working on cloning and things like that. But this is come to, to change one essence into another essence. That's beyond the scope of man. So nobody has that capability. Thus, if a person were to come to you with this claim, and we would say, prove it. And he said, okay, I'm going to take um, this baseball bat, and I'm going to turn it into a snake before your eyes. So then, would that constitute proof? I would say yes. Not that I wouldn't believe that this person is God, because we don't accept such a notion. I would say that the cause of this is God. Because the only being who has the capacity to do that is God. And this establishes the fact that there is, beyond the natural order, there's the supreme being who brought it, who brought it into existence, and he can, can, can change. He can control things, and he can make this transformation. So that's why it's a great proof. It's Rabbi Man, uh, the Torah seems to contradict what you're saying, because it says that the... The Egyptian musicians did do it. So if they did do it, I mean... I got the question. It's a good question, of course. Um, I'm maintaining that uh, no human could do this, and and it came from Hashem through the agency of Moshe. And yet the Pasuk then says that power called his wise men and his magicians, and they too did it. Uh, The Chartume Mitzrayim, that is the um, necromancers, who practiced these secret arts. They did it. But there's a key word over here in that verse. In verse 11 it says, in Hebrew it's belahatehem, with their incantations or so forth. In my opinion, it means with their magic. Now, it's a good thing that we live in, we live in an age when there's uh, illusionists and tremendous magicians. And I, I've seen them. And they seem to be able to do the impossible as well. But we know the difference. We know that we're dealing with something which is an illusion. So a great magician can take a, a staff and turn it into a snake, or you in the box, he puts the girl in there, and then he covers it and then pulls it off, and there's a tiger. And they're very, very sophisticated. But we know that it's not real, because we know that they do it with their magical practices. That is to say, you can only come so close. They would not allow anybody, a, a group of a scientists, so to speak, to be there and examine the props and, and then go ahead and do it. They will not do it in an environment where they can't practice their magic. Keep things, certain things are kept hidden. That has to be the case. There was this um, Randy, you know what? It's uh, The Amazing Randy. The Amazing Randy, yeah. yeah. And he, he said he could disprove any claim of all these magicians. Right. Right, and uh, he challenged. I think, I I think there's still like a, a million dollar offer out there on the table, I think, for anyone that can, can prove they can do a supernatural 
a supernatural event. Thing, and yeah. I remember there was Uri Geller who was claiming that he could cause metal to bend and clocks and things of that sort. Right, yeah. And uh, Randy um, challenged. In fact, I think um, he came on the Johnny Carson show and he had told Johnny Carson not to let him use his own keys or something, whatever he was. He, so Johnny Carson challenged him and he brought a separate set and he was not completely unprepared. He was totally embarrassed and he had to like um, try to talk his way out of it. And he wasn't up to it tonight. He was feeling weak, something like that. Probably the, uh, the, the, the energy in the room probably wasn't quite right. You know? <laughs> the energy in the room wasn't working right. <laughs> so, um, there, but however, however, if you go to a great magician show, uh, they can do it. I don't think they'd have a big deal, a big problem uh, taking a stick and turning it into a snake. It's an illusion. That's all it means. Now, the, the Torah, I got it. Yeah, so if, you know, if it's like you say, this is just an illusion, uh, the question kind of still stands. Why, why make this, uh, why make the sign something that can, can appear to be duplicated or, you know, be somewhat duplicated? Like, why not, why not make it something, you know, so phenomenal that they, that they couldn't even, you know, attempt to mimic it? Exactly. Well, if we go a little bit further, the, the Torah does point out the difference. You have to know how to study the Torah very carefully, the subtleties of the Torah. It's giving us the story, and it's letting us analyze it. The, another indication that you should not equate what the magicians did to what Moshe did is um, the next verse, 12. It says that each person cast a staff, and they became uh, snakes. Now, we're saying they did it through illusion, but then the, the verse says that the staff of Aaron swallowed their staffs. So anybody that was observing it, if the person was wise, was searching for the truth, he would see the difference. He'd see that the Moshe, Moshe didn't use any props. It was out in the open. It was a completely different environment. And the only way one could explain it was that a staff was converted into a, uh, a snake. The Egyptians, however, did it in a more secretive manner, keeping a certain distance so that nobody could watch what they were doing. That's the first difference. But then afterwards, the staff of Aaron swallowed all of their snakes. That's another supernatural event, because that doesn't happen in accordance with the laws of nature. So again, anybody that was studying it objectively would have come to the conclusion that uh, what Moshe did was different. But here's the clincher. And then the question, of course, is, as Josh is saying, well, did it succeed? Did it do the trick? In point of fact, not. Because the next verse says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. The heart of Pharaoh was, was hard, and he didn't listen to them, as God had predicted, as God had said. God, God had told Moshe already that Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. So, you know, don't get discouraged about that. Now, the question is, was, was it a successful demonstration? That's the question that we're dealing with. And, um, again, getting back to what Josh said, that uh, why didn't God do something which could not be duplicated? This phenomenon of duplication persists in the first few plagues, in the blood, in the frogs, the Tzvardea, the so-called frogs, and, and so forth, till it reaches the point where they cannot do it. And they say, this is the finger of God. And then, of course, as the plagues get mightier and stronger, which again, it, it, 
well, why couldn't they duplicate, if they had the, the power, why couldn't they duplicate uh, the hail, for example, or the darkness? As the plagues become more powerful, and it doesn't lend itself to illusions and so on and so forth, they, they could not stand up. They could not duplicate it. What's interesting, though, of course, is that God did not eliminate the um, possibility of duplication. It's there. It's there in this one. And we, again, we have to ask the question, God knew that they could duplicate it with magic. So then why use that? Why not use something which is completely out of their realm? Okay, Rabbi, so uh, what's the answer then? Why, uh, why design it in this way? Why, why, uh, why make something that can be duplicated? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. There's no doubt that uh, God could have given uh, Moshe a sign that would be completely out of the range, and they would fail. But I think the answer is that that's not the objective. It's not appropriate to say that it's the will of God that uh, man should believe in God. If that is true, but it's not being expressed correctly. It means that it's God's will that man should use his mind and his free will to come to the recognition of God. If God wanted to, he could force us, he could com uh, compel us, he could perform such mighty miracles that uh, there'd be no room for any possible doubt. More beyond that, if God wanted to, he could compel us, coerce us, to only do righteousness and follow all the commandments and never do evil by giving us tremendous rewards on the spot and by punishing people who would uh, disobey. So the whole world would be filled with, with terror, with fear. That's not the objective. That's not a true belief in God. That's not what God gave us, the divine soul, with reason, with intelligence. He wants us to come to a recognition of the truth, to use our minds, and um, not to be compelled emotionally. And that's why you see that the plagues, at first, be, before this, when Moshe came to Pharaoh the first time, he didn't bring any signs. He just used logic, ideas. He told them about the creator of the universe. And that's his will, that uh, you should let the Jews uh, go and worship their God, and so on and so forth. It was just ideas. And that was the, had Pharaoh listened and use his mind, that would have been the greatest benefit to Pharaoh. That is to say, when a person chooses the truth, the more he does so on the basis of ideas, and the less that he's responding to pressure, the greater the choice. He's using his mind. That's the highest possible level. The second level was he gave him demonstrations, he gave him signs. But it was deliberate that he allowed him that out. The fact that he had some rationalization, the fact that he had his magicians duplicated, that was good because now he was forced to differentiate. Differentiate between what they did and between what Moshe did. In differentiating, you're using your mind. But it, it creates, the definitely there's always the possibility, has to be that way. There's always the possibility that he'll cave into his emotions. And the reason why Pharaoh rejected Moshe was not because the proof wasn't clear. If that's the case, we have a big problem. Why would God send this prophet without clarity, without a clear proof? The proof is absolutely clear. But the stubbornness, the resistances of Pharaoh, so he needed an outlet. What was the outlet? The magicians. Oh, they could do it too. 
Yeah, it's not so great. Well, what's the difference? You see, they could do it too. But but the truth of the matter is that um, the the next verse points out that the defect came from Pharaoh. It wasn't a defect in the proof. The proof was very convincing had a person been searching for the truth. Because it says, the heart of Pharaoh hardened. Why, why does it have to mention that the heart of Pharaoh hardened and he didn't listen? If, if, I, if I demand a proof of you and it's not a real proof and I can duplicate it in the lab, so then there's no, I don't have to, I don't have to be stubborn. I don't have to, it's not called hardening my heart. It merely means to say that uh, you didn't prove it. That, but the, when, by adding those three words, it's telling us that really, um, had Paro, Paro recognized, on a certain level of the mind he recognized, but he had to harden his heart. And it was his stubbornness. The reason why he rejected it was his stubbornness. It was not because there was anything lacking in the demonstration. And the fact that they didn't duplicate it, that's the point. And had he been searching for the truth, he would have realized that they weren't duplicating anything. And he was just using that as a cover to give him some kind of a justification. But he wasn't a person of truth. And that explains But God was giving him the opportunity to use his mind. And that's really the entire uh, basis of the Torah, is that it's the will of God that we should search. We should search for him. There's a verse in uh, the Psalms which says that... Um, God from heaven looked down upon the sons, the sons of man, to see whether they're the Hebrew word is maskil. Now maskil, the root of that is seichel. Seichel is smarts. To use whether he's using his reason. It says about David that David wasn't always maskil. He was rational. He was intelligent in all of his doings. He applied what we call chachma which is, um, can be translated as wisdom, knowledge, that he approached everything, I'll use the word rationality, he approached everything with rationality. And God was with him. And that's what the verse says. God was with him. And it says in that verse that God looked down on the sons of man to see whether there was a rational person, searching, searching for God. That's what he wants. You know, it reminds me of like Abraham, who, you know, like God could have, Designed the universe in such a way that it, it was just obvious that there was a creator. And I mean, it, you have a, a man like Abraham who's capable of using his mind to arrive at the truth. To kind of figure, it's like the, the whole universe is really um, ordered along along this principle that, that God intends man to use his mind. Yeah, right? that is in my opinion, and that's of course the, the way Maimonides uh, formulates it, that the foundation of foundation is to know that there is a prior being. The, to know the supreme being, and um, that's a fundamental of Judaism. That uh, to the to the greatest extent possible. Of course, we're at the same time we say that God is unknowable, in a certain absolute sense, but that God exists. Certain things we do know about um, this being that we refer to as God. That's our task in life: to get to know Him and know Him and know Him. The more we can know Him, but. It, it should be rooted in our minds. That's why the study of Torah in Judaism is so important. And that's, as the rabbis say, that the study of Torah is, corresponds equal so, to all the commandments. We have to do the commandments, of course, because the knowledge should not be extraneous. It has to be applied to every area of our life. That is the root of the foundation of the perfection. 
It's, it stems from the conviction of the mind. And that's why a person has to train himself to the best of his ability, to use his mind, not to be uh, gullible, to question, to challenge, and to gain the understanding. I don't know who said it. I, I think it was, um, if you heard of Warren Buffett, it's not him, but his partner, his name is uh, Munger. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure of the details. It's just coming to mind. He, this, this fellow is a very brilliant individual, and he's a big fan of Maimonides. And he said something to the effect that um, Maimonides maintains that it's a religious duty to increase your knowledge. So that's a good way of... It's the only religion I know of that uh, maintains that it's an obligation, that it's a commandment for man to increase his knowledge. All right. It's very good. All right. Thanks for joining us on the show today, Reverend Man. My pleasure. Um, thanks, thanks to our listeners. I hope uh, we can do this again soon. Israel National Radio presents a new show called Ask the Rabbi. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is Rabbi Shimshon Adel, host of a brand new show, Ask the Rabbi, where I'll be taking your questions about Judaism, Torah, or maybe just some advice on family and relationships. Email your questions to rabbinadel at gmail.com, and I'll be answering them on the air. Don't miss Ask the Rabbi, Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Israel time, 1 p.m. Eastern time.